forgiveness, or to put it in, in an opposite term, to look at that which binds our heart. Because to the extent which we have things in our life, events, people, circumstances, and so forth, that are not healed, that are not forgiven, to that extent is our energy bound in those. So you could say forgiveness on one side, but another way to express it is the opening of the heart, or the release of that which binds us. Maybe I should read a story first. This comes from a series of tales called Burmese Monk's Tales. There was a, a, one of the Sayadaws in Burma who wandered around the country mostly telling stories. And uh, the gist of it is that there was a, a rich merchant from uh, Rangoon who was wandering in his travels to sell things up in the hills and became very, very ill and was taken in by a hill tribesman, a rel relatively simple peasant, um, who nourished and fed him and family took care of him until he was better. And the merchant was so grateful and he said, you are my benefactor and my brethren and my brother and all those nice things that one says in Asia after such a thing. And Anything I can ever do, please come and visit me. I am, I am your servant. So some years later, this peasant, this hill tribesman decides, yeah, Maybe I should go down and visit my brother in the big city. So he goes down and uh, visits him for a while and, and uh, enjoys it. And then the merchant said to him, um, you spend your time visiting the neighbors. You, you seem to enjoy it here. You came down on a lovely horse. May I borrow it to go and do some errands of mine? So the merchant took the horse. And he was actually a rather inconsiderate fellow. So he rode it from sunrise to sunset for a number of days in succession with the result that the poor animal became lame. Very sad. Now this peasant was really angered by the unkind treatment for his beloved horse. And he swore revenge on this man that if he ill-treats my horse, he said, then I will ill-treat his boat because Rangoon is a city right on the river. So, hiding his anger, he spoke sweetly to the merchant, and then he borrowed the man's boat. And he went out in it, and from sunrise to sunset, for three or four days, he rowed it angrily back and forth across the river, with the result that his hands became all burning and swollen, finding that revenge was not quite as sweet as he planned. He returned home. And uh, you can finish the rest of the story for yourself. <laughs> there was a really extraordinary circumstance that I was witness to, at least in part. And I've mentioned uh, some months ago here in a talk, the brief time that I was at the Cambodian refugee camps, um, initially going to try and work with medical teams there at the time of the greatest exodus of refugees. And having gotten ill myself, I ended up, um, fate had it, so to speak, uh, helping an old Cambodian monk that I knew that had survived, one of the few senior Cambodian monks to survive the Holocaust there, surviving primarily because he was in Thailand and on the other side of the border for much of that time. And he built some temples in the poorest of the refugee camps out of bamboo um, and announced that there would be a service for these refugees, most of whom were communists. And they came 10 or 20,000 people to this bamboo temple. 
And he began his talk in the simplest way by reading. First he chanted, and all the old women in the crowd started to weep because they hadn't heard the beauty of Buddhist chanting for, for five or ten years. And their villages were destroyed, and their temples were burned, and many people they knew had been killed. And it was just the, the most terrible circumstances. And here they were impoverished and in this camp, and each family had a hut that was, you could touch the walls on both sides with your hands. And then a little plot outside, maybe three or four feet wide, um, in which a lot of them planted a garden. It was amazing to see. Even though they had nothing, they would plant two or three squash plants or bean plants. The, the force of life is so powerful that after they were there for a few weeks, they still tried to make something of that little bit that they had. And so he rang the temple bell, and many, many people came, even though they were ostensibly communists and weren't supposed to. And they heard the chanting, and people were weeping. And he began a very simple talk. He said, I want to read you something from the Dhammapada, which is the collection of the most famous collection of Buddhist verses. And one of the verses which begins a section in the Dhammapada starts, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is hatred healed. This is an ancient and universal law. That's the verse, more or less. And he read that in Pali or Sanskrit, and then he started to speak about it very simply. He said, we've come together not to build Buddhists against communists or not to build this against that, but simply to look into our hearts and our minds and see what we have done and where we are and whether we have the capacity to start anew, to start in this moment and to forgive. Because no matter what terrors and what horrible things and what difficulties you have seen and you have been through, hatred never ceases by hatred. This is an ancient and universal law. And it was an amazing moment because he didn't give this big, fancy talk and there was such silence in it because even in those circumstances, and few of us, no matter how badly we've been treated or what terrible circumstances we've gone through in our lives, few of us have touched that kind of suffering in our lives. And yet even for them, the power of that truth the power of that law was evident and obvious. In one way, the whole nature of life is forgiveness. Spring forgives winter, and summer forgives spring, and autumn maybe has to be forgiven by winter. But the very nature of the change of our life, if we look at it, is a process of movement from one thing to another. It's never static. And as we've said before, it's never perfect, according to our ideas. And if we look at hatred and anger, I remember giving a talk here last year at one point on the joy of anger and working with anger, because it's not so bad either. That's different than kind of being caught in hatred over a long time. But if we look at anger and hatred very deeply and understand it, one thing we can see is often, if not always, it is a form of love that is twisted. 
it's an aspect of our shadow or some part of ourselves that's misunderstood, that's unconscious, that seeks contact, that seeks expression. It's an amazing thing to see. I knew it watching even in my own family when my parents would fight, which was, well, truthfully, one of their major ways of making contact. I don't know if any of you had families <laughs> like that, but it was amazing to see that a lot of times the way a tender contact wasn't so easily in my family, didn't come so easily. And one of the ways that they actually made contact was to start a fight. At least then they were there for each other. And I say that not um, as a kind of glib aside, but it's something for us to look at, even in the difficulty and the conflict that we find in our lives. Often it's to make some kind of contact or to heal some love or to touch some kind of love that's not healed, to connect in some way. But it's not a terribly healthy way to do it, is the only problem. You can do it some, it's not terrible in certain circumstances. But in the long run, it hurts. It hurts, and when we sit in meditation, the process is to become silent and to listen to our bodies and our feelings and our hearts and our minds. And one of the things we feel are all the things that we carry from the past that we hold. Not much wrong with the past itself, it's mostly a thought or a memory, but that which we hold of it, that which we grasp as tension in the physical body, as barriers in the heart, as memories and ideas and frustrations, it causes us sorrow, it causes us suffering. <coughs> For what? Many people are afraid, gee, if I forgive, if I let go, then I won't remember. So I better hold on to it. This is one way of thinking about it. I better hold on to it, because if I let go of it, then I'll be a pushover. I'll forget. I'll lose again. I'll be hurt again. Is that true? Let me ask you. I mean, as you look in yourself, do you have to carry that in order to be awake and not be pushed over? Do you think so? It sure does. It feels that way very strongly. Have you ever found circumstance in your life where you let go of something that you held like that, but didn't let go of the lesson? Have you ever seen that in yourself? You have. Anybody else seen that? It's very useful to distinguish between the lesson that you got taught and all the tension and anger and all the stuff that you hold in your body and your heart around it. Because if you can't distinguish between the two, then you do have to hold on to it all. But in truth, they're somewhat separate. And in fact, if you didn't get the lesson, even if you're holding on to it a lot, you'll probably do it over again until you do get the lesson. We've generally seen that. That's called samsara in Buddhism, which is either you do it in this relationship or you do it in the next relationship, or the one after that, or usually all three in a row, until whatever that is is seen or discovered. So that's the first thing to understand about forgiveness. We often don't let go because we confuse the lesson with um, that tension in our body and that holding on. And when you recognize even one time that potential to see and to know and say, I don't need to do that again, or to discover the difference, here's another critical difference, 
between aggression and assertion. That it's possible to say, no, that can't happen, stop that, to act in a very assertive way, but not out of the tension and the, the tightness and the aggression that's pent up from the past. And when we can separate those, then it begins to become possible for us to forgive. What else helps us to forgive? Oh, please, there's a question. Um, would it be uh, appropriate to, to add to what you're saying that uh, to uh, understand more of one's pattern, breaking that pattern, let go of that pattern? To, to see the pattern more clearly? To see it completely, thus not having it anymore? Yeah. That's very helpful, too, both, both the, the seeing of it and then the letting go through a clear, <coughs> through a clear seeing. Yeah, although it's interesting. You might say when you have a total understanding, there is a letting go. Very often we feel like we have a good understanding, and yet it repeats. Um, and that, that's, that you could say that's the proof of it. That's nicely put. So one thing is distinguishing between those two, between the lesson and what we carry extra, or between our capacity to say no or yes, to assert what's true with that sense of aggression. Another thing that helps in this process of coming to forgiveness is realizing that we have it all within us. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, who I've spoken of at other times here, and read his poem about compassion, that I am the child in Uganda, and I'm the merchant of arms, and I am the 12-year-old the refugee on a boat raped by the pirates, and I'm also the pirate who knows no better, who by his conditioning and fear and greed is acting out of that and creates that suffering. That if we look in our meditation over a long time in ourselves, we find it all in there. That our own minds are connected with the collective, the universal mind. And there is compassion and love and beauty and hatred and fear and greed and frustration. And there are moments when any one of us would kill, probably, and moments that we would die for another. Um, and in the beginning of my practice, I heard about greed, hatred, and delusion, and I thought, oh, they mean a little attachment and a little anger and irritation and a little bit of not seeing clearly. After doing quite a bit of meditation, I saw they meant greed and <laughs> hatred and rage and really deep ignorance. Have you seen that in yourself to some extent? Because you do when you sit for a while. Um, and so it's to recognize that that which motivates others, which we may not even forgive in another, is not so different than what we find in ourselves. For Thich Nhat Hanh, he said he worked for a, for a long time after reading about and hearing the tales of the sea pirates who preyed on the Vietnamese refugees who were escaping in boats, the boat people. It took him a long time to be able to see that that was a part of himself, too, those pirates, that we have all of it in ourselves. But if we don't see that, if we think we're better or different, or we've never done that, we've never been selfish, we've never been deluded, it's very hard to forgive that. What else helps in the process of forgiving? Just touching in ourselves 
the places where it hurts to not forgive. And let me go on to that in a minute. There's another piece I see that would fit in better before that. In order to forgive, if we want to, and it's really not something you're supposed to do, and it has its own season. You don't just forgive right away when something terrible happens. One of the first things that's needed in the process of forgiving, not those understandings, but the actual process, is to grieve. If we've been wronged or hurt in our lives, in order to let go, to release, to free ourselves in some loss, part of what's necessary is to grieve. And we should do a whole talk or a whole few weeks on grieving because it's such a big part of life. Grief means that you process letting go of things. And we let go of people and relationships and houses and our childhood and our parents and our um, possessions at certain times and our, uh, our views of ourselves. And all of those losses entail grieving. And grieving has lots of pieces. It has denial and bargaining and wishing it weren't so and frustration and anger and, and real sorrow and fear. And as you know, when there's some big grieving, someone has died or some relationship that really meant a lot to you has ended or there's been some great loss, it's a big process that takes over the whole heart and body and mind. And it takes its own time. It has its own life in it. One moment you may be angry and then you feel fine, and two minutes later you feel tremendously sad. And then the next morning you think it never happened. And then a few hours later you say, gee, what could I have done? And you're bargaining, if only God, if you let me do this, can you take it back? And it bubbles back and forth up out of our being and our unconscious and all the parts of ourselves until it releases and opens and resolves. One can't forgive until the grieving has been done. You can't take paper it over. Somebody does something terrible to you and you say, oh, I'm a good spiritual person. I should just forgive them. Um, it would be an injustice to your, to your being. You can grieve quickly. I don't mean to say you have to drag it out for 10 years necessarily, <laughs> but it takes its time and it knows what its time is. Usually when people come and complain, I, I've grieved so long, can't I be done with this already? I hear that at times at retreats and things. Usually you're about half done at that point. Right? And you think, God, I've done so much grief work. How much more grieving is there? Well, as much until you really, really accept what that loss or that pain was. So to do the process of forgiving, after you realize that forgiving has some value to you and that you can separate the lesson from the stuff that you hold that's unnecessary. You see that it's in yourself as well as in another, those forces. First, you need to grieve. Then after the grieving and so forth is let go of some, then generally you need to start by forgiving yourself, even before you forgive that other person. If nothing else, forgiving yourself for being so dumb is getting yourself in that situation. You know, how did I, how did I get myself into that? I mean, there are exceptions to that. I'm not saying it's always done by choice. But a lot of times in the release process, there's some forgiveness that's necessary for ourselves, that I put up with that, or that I, that I wanted something, or I did something that got me stuck in that situation where I was hurt. It's pretty hard to forgive the other party if you're still feeling angry at yourself. 
then if you've done that and you feel like you grieved or you've let go in that way and you've forgiven yourself some then you can start to look at what it takes to let go of or open or forgive let the barriers to the heart open what binds the heart in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness in yourself is a good way to look at it first the body I remember I said I would come back to that in a second if you pay attention you'll see that that which you hold vis-a-vis a person or a circumstance that's hurt you when you finish your grieving process that it hurts look in your body don't believe me but just look in and see to carry that is painful and if you've learned the lesson it doesn't serve very much so it's beginning in some way to come to terms with the reality of impermanence through our physical body. It's a great mirror. It shows us a lot. And if you're living in a lot of tension or your heart feels closed a lot, pay attention to the body first. See what's there, what tightness, what tension, and what calls for some letting go or some release or some forgiveness. Ajahn Chah, as I've talked about, puts it this way. He said, the problem with us is that we're always at war. We're in combat to escape being the fact of just this much, of the world being just the way it is. Instead of escaping, we continue to create more suffering. We wage war with what is good, with what is evil, with what is small, with what is big, with what is short or long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. And somehow in our lives, we have this sense of waging war with the way that life has presented itself to us. It's not fair. It should have been some other way. Whatever it was, one thing is for sure, it's done. Right? Whatever it was in the past, it's done. Painful, pleasant. And so the first thing is to look in our bodies and see where we hold. And in its time, and not a moment before, <laughs> guess that was its time to fall I hope you're okay in there I don't know what kind of Tibetan practice that is <laughs> in its time to listen to the body and ask and if you really listen your body will say please release me thank you it does then you move on to the heart to the feelings of the heart And I found, again, that there's this very strong connection between the physical and the emotional. At times, my heart will literally feel cold when I pay attention to it. Or I'll feel bands, almost as if there's... Wright called it character armor. When you pay attention and you sit in meditation, you can feel that when you get silent at times. Or at times, you feel like your heart is um, paining you, as if you had some kind of a heart attack. I talked about this in here one night. Um, it's particularly disturbing to doctors and nurses who then interpret it as some kind of medical emergency. Um, but really what it is, it's the heart beginning to open, and it hurts. It hurts because there have been these things where we've been hurt, and then we go, no more, I'm not going to let any more, none of that in. And it tightens down there. And it does in the feelings, all this whole level of feelings. And so our task becomes just to feel that 
and to see how much of the light of our heart, how much of the spirit of being alive, of the seasons of spring, of, of rainstorms, of sunlight, comes through our heart. And if there isn't much coming through, it's probably because it's a little, the doors are a little closed. You can't hurry it. This is an interesting thing. If you want to work with your heart, it's much more like a flower. And you can't say, okay, open up. And you, know, you grab the petals of the rose in order to get it to be a beautiful blossom. The heart is, is the same. But what you can do is you can water it and put sunshine on it, and it starts to open. And what those two things are, you can fertilize it, you can do other things. You can rub on it, you can touch it, that helps. Like fertilizing a little bit. The sunshine is the light of your awareness, just to start to become aware of the heart. Just to bring an awareness to it. And the water, the sweetness of the rain, is a kind of tenderness, a mercy. Not toward anything else, but just your own heart. Even if you don't want to, I hate them, I hate that, that's okay. Tenderness to that too, to that hatred. Or I'm closed, I'm not going to let anybody else in. That was too much for me, and maybe I'll open it a little bit, but no more. Or whatever it happens to be in us. Fine. To receive that with tenderness and say, it's okay. To cradle your heart as if you were cradling a child. It's all right. What makes a child that's really crying and contracted and hungry and afraid open up? Anybody ever played with a little child, an infant? You hold it. It's warmth. It's caressing. It's rocking. It's being with it for a while and kind of peeks out and cries a little bit more and looks out again. Okay, it's a little safe. And then you rock it. And maybe you give it some milk to drink or whatever it is. And gradually it says, okay, it's safe. The blossoming of the heart is not very different than that. And you can literally take the image of the child in holding your own heart. So there's the forgiveness through the body, the forgiveness through the heart. There's the forgiveness in the mind. This is probably the hardest place of all, actually, because we have our ideas about how somebody else should behave. <laughs> and we may even be right. The problem is that they don't follow them. <laughs> we probably are right in many cases, and it's really frustrating. You know the story of the man in the village who had the Chinese horse, in the Chinese village who had the horse? He was a rather prosperous man in this poor village. He had a wife and a son and a daughter and a beautiful horse, which drew his cart and plowed the fields. So he was one of the rich men in the village. Well, one day his horse ran away, and everyone in the village said, oh, such an unfortunate event, really sad. And he said, well, maybe. A little while later, a week later, the horse came back and it brought with it a wild stallion. And everyone said, oh, no, now he's really fortunate. He's got two horses, a very rich man. He said, well, maybe. He sent his son out to try and train the new horse and break the stallion in. But uh, unfortunately, what happened after doing that, some of the stallion threw him off and he broke his leg very badly. This is his only son, and um, he might walk with a limp, it wasn't clear, and they lay him up, his leg is broken, and everyone says, oh, your son, it's your most precious possession in the Chinese village. 
more than your daughter in those days. Daughters were kind of second rate. Your son broke his leg. So unfortunate. He says, well, maybe. About a week or two later, the emperor sent his army through town, um, recruiting all the young men to go off to fight the war against the barbarians, which they're still fighting to this day, as you may note. <laughs> And they take all the young men from the town except this one who's not healed yet. He's still lying there and still got his poultice on. And they say, oh, you're so fortunate. Yours is the only son who didn't have to go in the army. He says, well, maybe. And it can go on. We have an idea of what was supposed to happen and what is our lessons and how God's supposed to have made this world. And those opinions and those views and those ideas um, prevent a great deal of our freedom and a great deal of our forgiveness. Think about it for a minute. Think about the things in your life that you don't forgive. I'm not saying you should forgive tonight, by the way. That is completely up to you. It's like saying be attached or non-attached. That's completely up to you. But think about the places, the people, the circumstances that have created the barriers and where you haven't forgiven. And think of what ideas there are that you hold of how they should be and how the world should be. I'm sure the Cambodians had a bunch of ideas and the Vietnamese and the, a whole lot of people. Good evening. Hi. Hi. Only we're just, we're just in the middle. We're going to end in about 10 minutes or so. Well, what do you, have you started yet? No. You just want to come and say hello? Oh, wonderful. Hi, how nice to see you. You going to talk on Mahamudra? Yes, tonight in starts more or less in a few minutes. Okay. Well, maybe we'll, maybe some of us will move over there or something. We'll see how it works. Okay. See you. Yeah, see you. Do you live the same place? Yes, I do. Come visit. You were in the wrong uh, sect. <laughs> we'll forgive you, that's all right. <laughs> if you can forgive yourself. So that last, the third foundation of mindfulness of the mind, the body, the heart, and the feelings of the mind, all our views, all our ideas of how it's supposed to be. I thought it was going to be that we'd have some joint talk, but it's almost <laughs> over. But I'll forgive him for coming late. It's okay. Just to begin to look at that and to see what our ideas of how life, we should have a planet with no war. We should have relationships that never end. We should have bodies that don't grow old, and they certainly never get cancer or, or any of those kinds of things or die. We should have parents that are all-knowing and all-forgiving, and children that behave when they're supposed to, and so forth. Now, rather than talk a lot further about it, actually, Let's do a little meditation, and then maybe we'll have some discussion. Sit real comfortably. You don't have to make this terribly formal. 
let yourself sit very comfortably. What I'd like to do is start with a loving-kindness meditation, very briefly, and then kind of move to forgiveness as a kind of inquiry into ourselves, to look at that process and see what's going on inside. So when you're ready, let your eyes close gently. Pay attention in your body and see if there are places that you can relax or soften so the eyes and face are soft and the shoulders dropped and relaxed. And as you sit quietly, bring your attention to the area of the heart and let yourself sense or feel the breath almost as if it were coming in and out of the heart. And as you do, Imagine for a moment, as you feel the breath at the heart, sense the heart, imagine or sense that you could hold the heart in your awareness, in your mind's eye, in a very tender way, as if it were a child. And begin with the simple phrases to evoke a feeling of kindness for yourself. May I be happy, peaceful, may my heart open in kindness, be peaceful, and may I learn to receive every part of my experience with kindness and love, my whole body and mind. To cradle oneself with loving kindness. be peaceful and my heart be open. And now let's just pay attention inside for a moment. First to the body. What places of holding from the past 
can you feel in the body? What places of tension and tightness that are held from the past and not let go? Just become aware of them with the gentle sunshine of awareness and a tender attention, not to change them, but just to receive them. Then you might pay attention and see if any of those are asking or ready to be released and let go of. And to be aware of the heart. And try to sense how much holding there is, what barriers, what fear, what lack of forgiveness is there, without changing it, just to acknowledge it in a kind and conscious way. How much is our heart closed? And then to the mind. What are the ideas and opinions, how it should be, how it should have been that we hold, that keep us trapped in the past. Just to be aware of them, no need to change them yet, just to see them gently and clearly. What grief needs to be acknowledged and felt within us? What sorrow or anger? And where have we not forgiven ourselves? Finally, let two or three people or incidents come to mind that's really on our agenda for forgiveness, that's a place of work for us. Not that we even have to do it right away, but which people, who, which pains, 
which wounds, which circumstances. Is it time for us to begin to forgive, to grieve, to see clearly, to start to let go of? See if you can begin to connect those people or events with the tension and the holding in your body and your heart. We've all been wounded in some ways and we all have the capacity to forgive and to heal. And now having looked some at forgiveness and seeing what work there is to be done and what is asking for kindness and release. When you're ready, let your eyes open again. Return back to the room here. If you're not ready at all, don't do it. If you're not ready, don't force it. Don't do it till you're ready. Absolutely not. But you may learn when you look in what it's doing to you, or you may have some hints about what you want to let go of in yourself, even if it's not to forgive another person. I don't know. Trust yourself. It's a process that can't be forced. It really has its own pace and its own movement and its own time. What do you think when it's time for you to die? When we're near, when all of us are near our death? How would you like to do it then? Do you want to have a whole storehouse? I hope not. My sense is, certainly in myself, that as much as I'm able to do this work, of grieving and feeling angry when it's appropriate and processing through all of that and forgiving the more fully I can live now and perhaps the, the more gracefully I'll be ready to die. Questions? 
comments, concerns, thoughts, whatever you like. Please. If we give up our expectations of behavior in what happens to this ethic? One, you can't give up your um, sensibilities about behavior and ethics. They're a critical part of all spiritual life. Um, but you can give up your expectations. I'm glad you used that word because it's a little bit different. You can act in moral ways, in ethical ways, in virtuous ways, because they feel good to you and they are good for others to speak truthfully, to um, work in ways that bring harmony in one's life, in all one's conduct, with the world at large. And through your actions, you can model and be an example for that, and inspire others, and even speak of it. And those are ways of kind of bringing it to come to be. Um, and you can hope for it in other people. But um, you're even welcome to expect it. If you do expect it, however, you'll be disappointed sometimes. <laughs> it's just, it's that dilemma that's talked about in the Bhagavad Gita with Krishna and Arjuna, um, where finally Krishna says to Arjuna, act, if you want to act in the world freely, act without attachment to the fruit of your actions. If you do it, if you act toward this person or that one and expect a lot in return, to the extent that you are attached or have expectations, you may well have that degree of disappointment or suffering. But if you act hoping for that and giving your best without the attachment to the fruit, then what's left is up to the universe, to karma, to God, to whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a kind of a paradox. Both of those levels need to be respected. It's like separating the difference between the lesson and the extra holding. So it's a good question. Please. I find that I have a lot of expectations that get disappointed in my feelings get hurt. What I'm starting to find is that um, what I'm Expecting other people to give me what I need to give myself. Hmm. That's very nice. I'm in the same boat. I have expectations, and when they're not met, I get disappointed. I also find it sometimes one good way to let go of it is to tell them. I'm disappointed. I don't like that. Or even I'm upset. I'm angry about then it. It's, it's a discovery that this is something that you wanted. That you wanted, right. But, as you say, very often the thing that we most deeply long for, that we most deeply want, no one can ever give us finally. Because what do we most deeply want? What does that baby want? Wants to be held and loved and completely accepted. And if we can't do that to ourselves, even if someone heaps it on us, we'll never trust it. You know? So we'll say, they, don't, they didn't really see me in there. They haven't really seen what's in there. That's just right. 
And so half of the work in the retreats that I've taught now for the last 12 or 13 years, it's a number of thousands of people, half of the meditation work that people do in the West is self-acceptance, is tenderness, is kindness, is forgiveness. So much of it. It's the foundation for really being conscious, because until you begin to accept what's there, it even means accepting the nuclear arms race. Then you can act and say, I see it, I acknowledge it, there are all these weapons there, now what shall we do? But if you pretend it's not there, or you don't accept what's true now, then you can't act compassionately or wisely. Acceptance is a really big piece of practice. So the author said that acceptance has to do with understanding fear? Understanding fear. Yeah, fear is a big piece of it. That's nice to put that. Um, in certain systems, like the Course in Miracles, uh, there are only two states to human nature. There's love and there's fear. And every time that we notice an absence of love, it's because we're afraid in some way. We've contracted out of fear of being hurt. So that you could say that fear is, uh, is one word to use for that where we don't open, where we don't see clearly, where we don't accept. That's nicely put. Now, one of the nice things about this way of practice that we've been involved in here, it's not terribly moralistic. It doesn't say you should be good and you should forgive everybody and this is sinful and that's good and stuff. That gets really troublesome after a while. You probably noticed that if you were involved in such a system. Um, it simply describes the laws of, in some way, of contraction and expansion or the laws of uh, pain and the laws of release from pain into happiness, which are universal. They're true for plants and animals and stars and for human beings. And the more that we begin to see that, the more that the light of our awareness comes to it, the more naturally are we led to that kind of opening. So we sit and first we get quiet and we feel what's going on in the body. What does it need for exercise, for food? What's being held? What are the barriers here? How can we honor it and relate to it and the earth that nourishes it around? We look at the feelings in the heart in the same way. And when you hold something that's really tight in your hand or it's hot, after a while it becomes numb if you keep doing it. But as soon as you start to become very aware of it, what happens? You realize that it hurts. It's the very process of becoming aware of it that allows it to open. The body, the heart, the mind, it's all the same. So this very simple practice, following the breath, being aware of the sensations and the tightness in the body, being aware of the various feelings that come, and learning to honor with grace and with some ease the painful ones and the pleasant ones, the sad ones, the happy ones, the, the whole catastrophe, as Zorba says. And similarly for the mind, the simple practice of observing this opinion. You see, two minutes later, you have a different opinion anyway. <laughs> it begins to make it possible to find some other way of relating to this dance of the seasons, of the stars, of the earth, of birth and death, of relationships that constantly change around us. And that's what the talk in the other room is about. It's about Mahamudra, which means the great sign or the void or the great symbol. 
read you from the Mahamudra text to end. If one sees naught when staring into space, but with the mind observes all of space and the mind itself, one ends all distinctions and attains enlightenment. Do naught with your body but relax. Shut firm the mouth and silent remain. Empty your mind and think of naught. Like a hollow bamboo, rest at ease your body. Neither giving nor taking, allow the mind to come to its natural rest. Mahamudra, which is one of the highest of the Tibetan practices, is like a mind that clings to nothing. Thus practicing, you will realize your essential Buddhahood. Cease your activity for a moment. Let go of desires. Let your thoughts and feelings arise and pass as they will like ocean waves. One who abandons like and dislike for even a moment clinging to this and that perceives the real meaning of the Dharma. Transient is the world like dreams and shadows, rainbows and clouds. The true understanding can relate to all of that without the moment of attachment arising. At first, a yogi feels their mind tumbling like a waterfall. In mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle. In the end, Mahamudra, the mind's true essence, is like the great ocean where the lights of child and mother merge into one. There's a state of fundamental rest that underlies all of our activity, that is the basis of our activity. And to sit in meditation, even if there's thinking and remembering and planning and the body's busy, is to allow ourselves to touch that place a little bit and to let it start to inform our lives and release the barriers in the heart and heal the wounds and open ourselves to see the play of the seasons so that we can dance with them a little more fully. And so the very simple practice of sitting really opens us to all of that, even to the highest of the Tibetan teachings. It doesn't take a lot. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.